Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. I don't think people are taking time off work to hit this. But... <laughs> I, uh, you sent me some video of you dancing around the kitchen. It was amazing. <laughs> Music any white drunk college kid can dance to. I'll just stick with the AI stuff. That's yeah. Rowan said that, not me. My math teacher, like, she doesn't explain it that well well that's the hallucination right that's like ai hallucination we have lives too <laughs> mother shipton's cave rich adam is coming jim harold is coming i'm doing a lot of laughing is it mm-hmm. right views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the astonishing legends podcast are those of those individuals and do not necessarily reflect the view of astonishing legends productions or any entities affiliated with astonishing legends or guests of the show astonishing legends would like to thank wild grain mint mobile our contributors at patreon.com and you our listeners for making tonight's show possible tonight we embark on a journey to uncover the secrets of a lost city. A city that has eluded explorers and historians for centuries. Or has it? This is the story of Akakor. Legends of lost cities have fascinated humanity for centuries. From El Dorado to the lost city of Z, which controversial explorer Percy Fawcett spent the latter part of his life trying to find before vanishing in Brazil himself. The city of Akakor is no less elusive. Shrouded in mystery and intrigue, there are those who say it is a fabrication, while others will tell you it still exists to this day. Akakor's story begins with a man named Tatunkanara, a self-proclaimed tribal chieftain and prince of the Uga Mangalula tribe. According to Nara, Akakor was a hidden underground city with immense power treasures, and a collection of ancient wisdom thousands of years in the making. And on top of that, he was a prince of this mysterious place himself. In the early 1970s, journalist Karl Brueger met Tatunkanara. Although he was initially incredulous, he became intoxicated with Nara's story and decided to document it and publish a book about it in 1976 titled The Chronicle of Akakor. Seizing on the intriguing tale, Amateur adventurers came from all over the world to try and find Akakor and see it for themselves, often hiring Tatunka to guide them there. But it turns out, at least three of them would never make it back home. One by one, they ventured into the Amazon, and one by one, they vanished, swallowed up by the unforgiving jungle. Some believe they fell victim to the treacherous terrain, succumbing to the dangers lurking in the shadows. Others speculate that there were silence to keep the location of Akakor from being shared with the world. The fate of those two intrepid adventurers remains a mystery to this day. The other one, well, his body was discovered sometime later. And not only had he been murdered, but we know how. The only question is why. Were the local tribes killing tourists to protect Akakor's secrets? Or was something much darker happening? Tonight, we have the great fortune of being joined by King of Phillips, journalist, explorer, Shark Week host, and fellow at the prestigious 120-year-old Explorers Club. Kinga and her Explorers Club colleague J.J. Kelly co-hosted a series called Lost in the Wild on the Travel Channel. It was dedicated to investigating cases of missing persons that have taken place in exotic locations. 
the show went to Brazil to look into the story of Akakor and Tatunkanara. And tonight, King of Phillips is here with us to share what they uncovered on that harrowing adventure. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I saw a woman going upstream with Tatunka, and after three days, he came back alone. An anonymous witness in Brazil referring to one of three tourist adventurers who vanished while looking for Akakor. Join us tonight for part one of the fascinating story of the lost city of Akakor with our special guest, Kinga Phillips. And I'm back. Where'd you go? Places. What'd you do? Stuff. Did I miss anything? Well, yeah, actually, I had a blast with Rich Haddam and Marie Mayhew while you were gone, but I'm very glad you've returned, Fred. <laughs> I know. I heard all about that. Well, thank you so much, my friend. It's good to be back somewhat in the saddle, sort of, at least physically. <laughs> and thanks again to Rich and Marie for pinch hitting for me while I was out. But now that I'm back, and for the record, I'm the only one who gets to say, and we're back from here on out. It's in my rider, along with the peanut M&M clause. All right, folks, some very quick housekeeping tonight. Firstly, it's been a while since we've done this, but we really want to thank Thank everyone again for supporting our sponsors. Yes, dear, dear listeners. Between that and our patrons at patreon.com, we get to keep doing the show. So thank you very, very much. As you know, we're good friends with the folks at Small Town Monsters. And in fact, we attended the very first Monster Fest last year in Canton, Ohio, and had so much fun, we're already signed on to go back this year in June. Mm. But that's not what I'm talking about right now. What I'm talking about right now is the annual Kickstarter campaign that Small Town Monsters does every year to help fund their next round of projects. Yeah, folks, we've contributed to these a few years in a row, and we'll be doing it again this year. But you know what? Let's hear about this from our good friend, Heather Moser. Yeah, Heather's actually been on the show before. You heard her on the episode about the wizard clip. Uh, She's been on before that, and she and I actually spoke together at the Pig Lady Festival a few years ago. She's now a producer and researcher at Small Town Monsters, actually has been for a while, and they are kicking off their, uh, and that's the right word, their Kickstarter. It's an annual Kickstarter that they do that's part of the fundraising that they do every year to produce the films for that year, right? Heather, is that, that starting off now? Absolutely. It goes through the end of February, and we are hoping to meet our goal and then get to those stretch goals. That's awesome. So what projects are they trying to line up for this year? Okay, so for this year, we have Dogman Territory, Werewolves uh, in the Land Between the Lakes, which, of course, is pretty self-explanatory. There is Lost Contact, which is a story of Thomas Mantell, who lost his life while pursuing a UFO in January of 1948. Oh, I love that story. Yeah, it's a great one. And On the Trail of Bigfoot, The Ancients, which is the next chapter in the On the Trail of Bigfoot series, which it will be set in the Smoky Mountains. And it'll include Russ Jones, Matt Pruitt, Mark Matsky, and of course, Seth Breedlove, trying to find the next evidence of, of Bigfoot. And then one of the things that we're doing as well for this year is a Kickstarter exclusive film, which is called Cryptid the Goatman. 
That will be available to just our backers only. Yeah, Astonishing Legends has backed these over the years, and still one of my prized possessions is the Flatwoods Monster that you guys created for that one. It's just amazing, and it's appeared on most of our live streams. It's very, very cool. Yes, and then speaking of the statue this year, because we do a statue every year as well Yes. Um, for people that want to back at that level. Yeah. And this year, it's going to be a Goatman statue by Gene St. Jean. Okay, well, I'm, I'm in. I'm definitely in as, uh, as soon as we finish recording <laughs> this. That's great. So where, how can people find this Kickstarter? What do they look for? So if they go to kickstarter.com and look for Small Town Monsters, mm-hmm. they can find us that way. It'll be open through the end of February. And okay. there's lots of awesome rewards. You can get a specialized t-shirt, a Kickstarter exclusive hoodie. We have Aaron Deese's new book, Hunting Grounds, available in hardback only. That's a Kickstarter exclusive as well. Oh. And then if we reach our stretch goal, then physical copies of our next movie, it's called Cursed Waters, Creature of Lake Okanagan, which is about Ogopogo. Oh. It's coming out. Folks, I will say that I met uh, Aaron at Monster Fest. Aaron is a super cool dude. That's, so that'd be a great get to get that book. This is another thing that I'm going to want to put us in for from Astonishing Legends to sponsor this. And also physical copies are important because when the next sunspot comes and wipes out all of our digital work, <laughs> you want to have a physical copy of, of the movie. So I think yes, that's good. Yes. One more thing for people that are listening and want to actually come see you guys at Monster Fest. Yes. There is a Monster Fest ticket add-on to the Kickstarter. So you can oh. back Kickstarter and then you can add on Monster Fest tickets on that. So all right, folks. Well, there you heard it here first. Get out and support small town monsters. They're some of our favorite friends in the uh, paranormal world, and we've had a long time relationship with them. We first met them back when our, our first outing that we did where we got out from behind the mics at Kent State. So it's been a long time now that we've we've known this team and and they're really the best to work with and the best to hang out with. So definitely try to get that Monster Fest ticket. And I'm going to go sign up for all this stuff now at the Kickstarter right this second. Heather, thank you so much for joining us again. And in addition to all of that cool stuff Heather mentioned, there are exclusive Kickstarter posters designed by the wonderful Chelsea Lowe. Oh, yeah. You know, she's done a lot of the cover art for the Small Town Monsters movies. And she's amazing. Folks, tonight we are bringing in a special guest to join us for this series because of her practical experience with the topic, and you're going to understand why once we start talking about it. But before we do that, let's introduce you to Kinga Phillips. Kinga, welcome to Astonishing Legends. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. I'm excited about this. We're excited to have you, and you and I have uh, been getting to know each other on text and email for the past several weeks, and uh, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. I'm very envious of your career. I think Forrest and I both would like to uh, get out from behind our computers and do a little more of what you actually do on the regular. (laughs) King is actually one of those adventurers and scholars and presenters who actually does something, who actually gets out and sees things. Yeah, so why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and uh, the kinds of stuff you've been up to the past several years? Well, the first thing I will tell you is uh, being in a room is maybe not quite as much fun, but there's less mosquitoes, poisonous snakes, <laughs> spiders true. the size of your head. So there's definitely ups and downs to the boots on the ground, but I do love the boots on the ground. So my background is in journalism. I also have a background in anthropology and in wilderness survival. And for the last 24 years, I have been doing television, but most of the television I've done is in the world of history, in mysteries, in journalistic investigation. So I've done everything from Legend Quest, where we have looked for the Golden Sun Disc of Peru, to Lost in the Wild, which we will be talking about, which is a show looking for missing persons in the wilderness, and Shark Week, lots of sharks, and just adventures all over the world. It's been fun. What was your first big gig? 
it's funny because when I first came into the business, I knew that I wanted to do stuff with National Geographic. Like I just dreamed of myself in that yellow rectangle. And one day I got to work for them. And when I actually had my photo taken in that, I cried. But to get there was kind of a long road because when I arrived like 24 years ago, girls usually got to do entertainment stuff and ask people what they were wearing. And I kind of didn't care what people were wearing unless it was like safari clothes and they were, you know, out there stalking with lions. And so I really fought my way into the adventure travel space. And eventually I got there for a while. I was the girl who was in the background pointing at things. That's what they would let me do. And I'd be someone's sidekick. And after a while, they realized that I had two brain cells to rub together maybe have one of those left at this point. But (laughs) then I got to get out there and do a lot of these things on my own. That is so cool. And you just casually threw it away earlier. But when you talk about Shark Week, you were actually the first woman to host Shark Week. Is that correct? That is correct. In 33 years of Shark Week, I got to be the first female to host my own show. Now, they've had celebrities on. They've had amazing female scientists on. But there had never been a female who had hosted her entire own show with her voice and her story. So that was a big deal for me. That is just amazing. Also, the other thing, when you told me that I couldn't believe Shark Week had been around for 33 years, like that blew my mind. Mm. I was like, I instantly grew a long white beard when I did that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now it's 35 years, I think. This this was 35 or 36 even. What is your experience with sharks? As I was in this whole world of adventure and travel and history and backgrounds, and I love mythology and I loved culture and I love creation myths, and that's such a big part of the background that I have, less on the paranormal side and more kind of on the anthropological side. And so many creation myths were associated with sharks. And so I kind of started getting interested there. And then I joined an organization because I also love conservation. I love the oceans. I'm a diver and a free diver and a surfer and, you know, put me in the water and I'm happy. (laughs) And I started working with a conservation org called Shark Allies to protect sharks. And that's how I got to spend a lot of time in the water with them, get to know them, get to understand their value in the ecosystem. And then because I worked in TV and also in shark conservation, Shark Week was this nice blend. Although I had to bang down their door for about five years before they were like, (laughs) oh, just let her in already. Let her host her own show. (laughs) That's awesome. Of all the places that you've been and the shows you've covered and the stories, you pointed this episode out and this subject as one of your favorites. But what makes it so compelling to you? This story to me is fantastic because it is so multi-layered. It Mm. has so many twists and turns. It goes into history and mystery and adventure and some nefarious actions. It really has a little bit of everything. This story is great to me. And because quite frankly, it's unsolved. Yes, that's what we love about it too. And in fact, I would say that one of the reasons that you were such a great source of information for, and you brought it to our attention, I actually wasn't aware of it. I hadn't heard of it. And I don't know, Forrest, had you heard of Akakora before? The name was familiar because it's so unusual and that stands out. But we really didn't know a whole lot about the backstory. And this is something that is right up our alley because it is getting to the heart of a story, hearing a a familiar term or something that you're not familiar with and you want to know more about, what's really behind this legend or myth? We're here to get to the bottom of the story. And I think out of anybody, you've really cracked a lid on this one. And you're right. It's fascinating. There's so many twists and turns and it's not what you expect. And that's what we love about it. 
One of the reasons that we wanted to have you on to talk about this was because you've had some experience with this particular mystery, and that's because you had a show for a while. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about Lost in the Wild? So Lost in the Wild was a show that was we did for Travel Channel in 2019 and 2020, and the premise of the show was J.J. Kelly and myself, we were the two hosts, and we were investigators that would go out into the world and we would pursue the stories of people who had gone missing in the wilderness. And most of these stories, were they were completely unsolved, and either the person had completely vanished and was never to be seen again, or sometimes body parts would turn up and the person would be identified, but no one really knew what happened to them. So we traveled from Brazil to Panama to the Galapagos to Malaysia to the Philippines to Zimbabwe to India and pursued some truly astonishing, heartbreaking, and fascinating stories about real people. And our stories ranged from, you know, some of them were as recent as three months before we got there. And some of them were, you know, within the last century, but they were all pretty amazing, extraordinary, and and had some really great life lessons in them. Yeah, it's a great series. We really enjoyed watching this episode. And, And you and JJ are both members of the Explorers Club as well, right? We are, correct. And what is the Explorers Club? So the Explorers Club is an organization that's been around for quite some time, and pretty much everyone who has done some major exploring out there from the originals to all the big names of exploration are members of this club. So it's a group of people who are in education and exploration in journalism who go out there, seek, pursue, and teach in the space of exploring our planet. We have flag expeditions, so if something is new and extraordinary and they're going to go visit a place that hasn't been seen before or something new to be done. I know our flags have been to the Challenger Deep in the ocean and they've been up in space. They have been all over the world. So it is really about exploring this extraordinary planet and figuring out things that maybe hadn't been figured out before. All right. Again, envious. And uh, I had told you, I think, um, a few weeks ago when we were talking about this episode, that uh, I used to live in New York, and uh, my son was actually born just a few blocks from the headquarters there. So I want to get up there and check that yeah, out. Yeah, I'll have to go. <laughs> you know how I sometimes ask you about any picky eaters in your family? Yeah. Well, I think almost every family has one, and I'm no exception. In mine, it's my dad. But I think I found a surefire cure that appeases, pleases, and appetizes every time. Appetizes. That's that's not a word. Yes, wild grain. And no, you're right, it's not. But you know we love neologisms around here, or at least I do. And we also love wild grain. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, there is nothing quite as enticing and soul-soothing as the smell of freshly baked bread. And no simple pleasure taste satisfaction that matches hot out of the oven, steaming when you pull it apart, and with a pad of butter melting on it, delicious bread or baked goods. Wild Grain is guaranteed to turn those whatevers into, I'll have another slice, please. Absolutely. And I've said it before when we were talking about Wild Grain, it is magical because it also works on aloof teenagers. <laughs> yep. And if you're expected to bring a side to a dinner party, it's a terrific solution that's easier than a trip to the bakery or grocery store and more healthy than a tired old dessert. And the freshness and deliciousness are sure to impress. You can't go wrong, people. Wild Grain is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. And every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. Yeah, that ease of freezer to the oven with no thawing required is crucial because with Dad, we have an anti-hypoglycemia slash hangry window we gotta make, and any wild grain item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, so there are no frowns, only smiles. 
And now you can fully customize your wild grain box, so you can choose any combination of breads, pastas, and pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or if you're like me, only pastries. Well, a box of only wild grain croissants would suit us just fine. But hang on to hear how you can get free croissants in every box. That's right. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com legends to start your subscription. You heard the man, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com legends. That's wildgrain.com legends, or you can use promo code legends at checkout. It's February, man. Did you make any New Year's resolutions? Actually, I did. I I don't always, but I did this year. And how's that going for you? Well, honestly, I'm sticking to a few of the big ones, others not so much. Also, some of them have led to new things that I didn't think about. It's like whack-a-mole. Like, for example, I'm still doing dry January, but in cutting back on alcohol, my sweet tooth has gone through the roof. But there's another resolution I'm working on that's going pretty well. Oh, yeah? Well, what's that? Saving money. As a household, we're actually trying to clamp down on our spending here. That is a valiant one, my friend. It turns out that on average, it only takes about 30 days for a person to break their New Year's resolution. So if you're like Scott here and saving money was on your list for 2024, you may already be at the end of your rope. I mean, I'm not saying I'm at the end of my rope. (laughs) No, I know, man. Listen, I'm just saying we have a 100% guaranteed way to save you money in 2024. And it's a piece of cake to keep up with because you only have to make the change once. Switch to Mint Mobile. Oh yeah, this is a no-brainer, folks. Right now, Mint Mobile has wireless plans starting at $15 a month. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. What's your wireless bill right now? Come on, you know how much that is. Everybody does. Now subtract 15 from that, and let's keep the math easy. Multiply that leftover number by 10. That's just 10 months. If you were on Mint Mobile's $15 a month plan, that number is how much you could be saving in just 10 months. Now add two more months to that. I think you made that unnecessarily confusing. Okay, right. here's an example. Let's say you're paying $50 a month. Subtract 15 from that. You got 35 left over. 35 times 10, $350. That's how much you could save in just 10 months by switching to Mint Mobile's $15 plan for the year. Plus another 35 times two on top of that, or 70 more dollars. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a little more sense. And if your bill is more than that, you'd save even more. For anyone who hates their wireless bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Choose from three, six, or 12-month plans and say goodbye to a monthly phone bill. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or family. And at Mint, families start at two lines. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Switch to Mint Mobile and get your first three months of premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash A-L. That's mintmobile.com slash A-L. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash A-L. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Hi, I'm Dave Palace, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. 
All right, so let's get on to Akakor. Let's talk about this place because that is connected to this particular story. And that's where we felt like we should start because Akakor, that fits really well with Astonishing Legends and what we do. You know, we talk about lost cities. We've never covered El Dorado, but we've certainly mentioned it. We've talked about lost civilizations. We've talked about Pumapunku in Peru. Yep. Well, we're going to do Namadal, but we hadn't covered that yet. And then Bapkarodi. Yes. And again, right, right. that's more of an intersection with something paranormal, perhaps. Where here it's, uh, yeah, there are some strange elements, but it really is about anthropology, sociology, criminology, yep. perhaps. Right. And uh, like you said, there's so many facets to this story that may lie in maybe in an alternative history of people also something akin to ancient apocalypse. I don't know if you've seen that that series, but it can get very controversial because this provides an alternative origin story for at least some small groups of people and their their societies that remain hidden. And also there's a little bit of a Lemuria and, and yeah. living civilizations, living in caves and underground and hidden middle worlds with ancient knowledge and coming from gods of sorts. Uh -huh. And uh, so again, that all piques the interest. And then you start finding out like, I don't know how much of this is true. There is a bit of a disbelief that happens with it, but then it starts to veer into territory where that disbelief turns into intrigue, but in a different way in that it's a sociological phenomenon of how some one person may have gotten a bunch of people not only to believe this, but also to fear it. And it could be a figment of somebody's imagination, or there might be some real elements to it. Like every good legend, there's always yes. little bits of proof that keeps you wondering. And that has the story here. Akakor has it too. I think there's also some inherent psychology in this, that there has never been a civilization or a culture that has existed that hasn't had some kind of footprint in spirituality, in mythology, mm. in lore, in legends, in the occult. And the occult, you know, I think when people use that word now, they think about witches and they think about right. magic. But the occult is really anything outside of our realm of understanding. Yeah, Every culture that has ever existed has had some kind of a creation myth, has had some kind of a religion, a spirituality attached to it. So we as humans very much long for that. And even with Akakor, like you said, oh, I think I've heard of it. And maybe you have, or maybe... It is so similar to other legends that are just a little bit tweaked away from this, but also really in the same vein that maybe mm -hmm. it sounds familiar. Because when I read this story, I thought, I feel like I've heard this before. And right, we really right. have, haven't we? And Spielberg leaned on it for Indiana Jones, right? <laughs> Big time leaned on Akator, it. Like a yeah. It's so leaned on that. And I was going to say, there is a movie, I think from the late 50s, with the uh, legendary Charlton Heston called Secret of the Incas. Oh, yeah. Which has a lot of elements, including the hat, the whip, the leather jacket. Oh, that's uh, right. The, that's uh, right. The he, yes. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of uh, myth upon myth. And I think that's what's happening here with Akakor is that some things were borrowed upon that really resonate with some people who are just more imaginative, maybe, and wondering about fantasy and lost uh, civilizations, kind of like we are, but just had the, the gumption to actually go down to a very remote location and go check it out. And that aspect of it not only created the story of what we know about Akakor, but also fueled a lot of imaginations to such a degree that people actually went searching for it, which also happens. Yeah. Uh, but Kinga, how did you trip onto the story? 
before the book. How did this creation myth of the story happen for you? And what did you initially think about it before and after you read the book and before and after you actually experienced the place? I went backwards into this book because I was familiar with the more recent story of our lead character, Tatum Kanara. And with this show, Lost in the Wild, we were going to investigate some disappearances in the Amazonian jungle in a little town called Barcelos. So of course, as any good journalist, I did all my back research and my studying up, up on this. And I came across his name associated with his book called The Chronicles of Akakor, which I then read. And then my little brain with my one working brain cell exploded <laughs> at that point and went, what on earth is this? And of course, as we will explain to everyone in this whole story, it is all interwoven together. Why I was in Brazil, why there was a mystery for a Lost in the Wild show, and how this lost city is really, quite frankly, at the epicenter of it. And immediately, one of the most fascinating things about this to me was that because this lost city is you know, underground and these people live underground and we'll get onto all that, and because it's in the Amazonian jungle, which is a crazy, crazy place, and there are still parts of it that are completely untouched by modern people. Obviously, there are indigenous people who live there. Right. It could feasibly, plausibly exist. And I think any good right. scientist will tell you that if you can't disprove something, then you can't really rule it out completely. I mean, that's the reason we still have religion, right? It's the reason still people look for Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. No one can conclusively say, no, absolutely not, 100%, it doesn't exist. So there's an intrigue right. in that. So when this book landed in my lap, and it landed in my lap on a plane flying to Brazil, and I read it, and I went, holy moly, this is mind-boggling. And it is, as you said, Forrest, basically this creation story of this lost city of Acrocor that supposedly exists on the intersection of the, the now borders of Brazil, Bolivia, and Peru, and has existed there for 14,000 years. And the Chronicles of Acacor is basically the whole written story of these people starting from about 12,000 years ago when the gods left them. One thing I want to tell our listeners about Acacor is don't look it up. No, don't. It'll be more fun <laughs> if you play with us. Yeah, that, yes. there's some spoilers out there. Just ride along with us on this. We're going to be on two parts on this, so just enjoy the ride on it. I think most of our audience knows by now not to look up anything on Wikipedia. <laughs> but what you find is that there are bits to it that are real. And in this case, you can point to things that actually happen. And Kinga, to your point here, with modern technology, such as LIDAR, we're discovering things mm -hmm. swallowed up by the jungle and the earth that turn out to be undiscovered and true and more amazing than we could have possibly imagined before that. Absolutely. I was in Guatemala at Tikal, and there are still pyramids that are within the complex of Tikal, which is another huge, incredible ancient no. complex that they know are there, but they don't know how big they are. So someone will come along with LIDAR, like you said, and, and hopefully be able to expand upon that knowledge. That's amazing. Well, let's explain to our listeners how the Chronicle of Akakor came to be. And so that's going to start out with author Carl Brueger. Mm -hmm. He had gone to Brazil to pursue a meeting with the man who had been telling the story of Akakor, Tatunka Nara. And Tatunka claimed to be a prince of Akakor himself. And he had this whole tale of 
what exactly Akakor was, where it was, and how he was at that time the only person who knew where it was and how to get there. And it was this vast city hidden in the Amazon, as Kinga just said, near the border of Brazil and Peru. It had above ground structures, including a pyramid apparently that's now grown over. It had vast underground chambers. And at one point, according to Tatunka, there were over 2 million people living and working here. And as uh, Kinga said, it was 12, 14,000 years old. They had descended from gods. The wisdom of the ages was hidden away there. Uh, they did have a written language that Tatunka could recreate, but didn't really know what the symbols meant anymore, apparently, because that was lost to time. And he's the only one that knows where it is. So how do we come to find this story is that Karl Brueger, who was a German journalist, he went there and he interviewed Tatunka. According to his book, which we read, it's very hard to find. We did find a PDF of it, thank God. And Kinga, apparently you said you had a copy of it in a storage unit somewhere. Somewhere. Yeah, it's currently going on all the classic book sites for $3,000 right now. So I got to find it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Get that onto eBay. So uh, Brueger goes and meets Tatunka at a bar called, Kinga, you're going to have to correct me because I know you're uh, multilingual, but Grakasadus. Well, I speak Polish, so no, I can't okay. help you with that. <laughs> I thought I heard you speaking Spanish on your no. show, maybe. <laughs> oh, for, I think we did. There's, we did a little bit of Portuguese. A little Portuguese, yeah. yeah I had, had one-liners here and there. Okay, there you go. Well, Gracasadus, I guess, means grace of God. This is a little bar in uh, Manaus where you went mm -hmm. in Brazil. And this meeting between Brueger and Tatunka was arranged, I think, by a military liaison within the yeah. Brazilian government. And that's another thing about Tatunka. He seems to be connected with the military. A little too well-connected, yeah. Yeah, a little too well connected. So Tatunka is native to the area, but he spoke to Karl Brueger in broken German. That's one thing that Karl notes right off the bat. And when he showed up, he was wearing apparently an old suit that had been given to him by his friends in the military. Again, a connection for Tatunka. And then he was from a tribe called the Uga Mangolala, if I'm saying that right. Uh -huh. Uga Mangolala. Uga Mangalala. He describes that tribe as being chosen by God. We'll talk a little bit about the name here in a moment. But he proceeds to share an extremely detailed history of the tribe with Brueger. And they started talking a little bit. And then later he meets with Brueger at his hotel. And they sit and talk and talk and talk. And Brueger said he collected 12 hours of tapes. Mm -hmm. And at first he was a little incredulous. And that comes through in the book when you read it. There's a little bit of back and forth. He's, he seems to be wrestling with the realities of how much Tatunka's story is accurate. And he was a journalist, so you can hardly blame him. Yeah, you can't blame him. And there's a lot of stuff that does jibe with things that we know about history and other cultures, but there's other things that didn't quite jibe, but it was hard to disprove or say that it was impossible. Mm -hmm. So he's doing a little bit of fact-checking, trying to figure out how far he should go with this. You know, am I really going to make this into a book after he's done the interviews and everything? And he, at that point, verifies a story that Tatunka had said about rescuing some soldiers who had gone down in a crash. Now, at one point I read it was a helicopter, but in Brueger's book it says it was an airplane. Twelve soldiers. Yeah, so it, and it crashed in the mountains, and there were 12 people that survived the accident, and they were captured by an indigenous tribe okay. and held, or Tatunka came across them and somehow rescued them and brought them all the way back to Manaus. And there's more about that story and what he was supposed to do and what he did instead, according to him. Yeah, there's slightly different versions of that that come through. As you'll see in this entire story, there are slightly different versions that come through of things. What are the different versions of that story? 
well, the different versions of that I've read in different places are I've also read that it's a helicopter and a plane, and you know that could just be miscommunication. Either way, there was something that crashed in the Brazilian jungle, and in one version, there were twelve survivors that were then taken by an indigenous tribe, and they were going to be executed, and they were being held captive. And Tatunka said, "No, I'm going to take him in to Manaus." And then the other version, as you said, he just came across them. He was able to rescue them from this plane. They would have died in the jungle because the jungle is very inhospitable to people who don't know how to survive there, and he brought them in. So the main story there is there was a crash in the jungle, there were 12 survivors, and they were Brazilian military, and Tatunka was able to bring them to Manaus. And this was something that Carl Brueger verified in 1972 when he met Tatunka, because he had a contact that he only refers to as M in his book, and that is his Secret Service Brazilian contact. Right. And he had said in his book, too, that he had confirmed it with some newspaper articles as well. Mm -hmm. So it was like it was a real event. This is a definite event of some kind that happened, even though it's a little fuzzy how it played out. You can obviously imagine how that would endear Tatunka to these men and to the government in general. And that may come up again here in the future. Yeah, because we don't know who those men were. We don't know what that plane was doing. Right. We don't know who else or what else was on board that plane. There, there are some mysteries surrounding that. Right. Bruger is verifying that. He's verifying a few other things, and he decides, okay, you know what? I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to write this out. I'm going to make this into a book. So when he had first met Tatunka in 1972, in 1976, he publishes mm-hmm. Chronicle of Akakor, which also is what Tatunka said was the name of the historical information that his tribe, the Ugamangalala, had in their possession. Another interesting thing about this was that no, I guess, white men technically had ever seen that except for a bishop mm-hmm. that he was working with later. And we'll talk about that bishop in a little bit. That bishop mysteriously died in a plane crash three months after they were working together trying to uh, raise That's right. donations of food for uh, indigenous peoples. So and that bishop apparently also had some of the ancient scrolls of Akakor, but he had sent them to the Vatican. Right. Tatunka thought, or, or I guess it was Tatunka that thought that they had gone to the, the secret archives at the Vatican. Yeah. So that's, we, yeah, calling Dan Brown on that one. <laughs> Tatunka, after bringing, rescuing these 12 soldiers, he vanishes from Manaus, which is one of his favorite things to do. He's a very interesting character. He will show up. He's done this heroic thing. Now he's vanishing. So he disappeared. In the story that he tells Ruger, there was a point at which he led some fighting between indigenous tribes mm-hmm. and white Peruvian settlers. Yep. Around 1969 and 70 or 71, there was one particular battle that was lost, and he had to flee. So he disappears, vanishes again. 1972, he shows back up in the Brazilian town of Rio Branco. Did you make it to the, or have you been to the western part of Brazil, where in Peru near that border before? Because Manaus is pretty far east, right? Manaus is pretty far east in Barcelos. And I've been to Peru separately. But I, for this story, I did not get to go to that area, no. And the state, is it's spelled Acre. I don't know if you pronounce it Acre or or how you say it. Acre. Yeah, Acre. Yes, that's on the edge of uh, Peru. In that area is where we think Acacor might Mm be based on the things that he was saying. Because what's interesting is, is Tatunka, for most of the part that he's telling the story and he's in Manaus and then later Barcelos, as far as I could tell on Google Earth, that's about 700 miles east of that side of Brazil. Yeah. So he's he's a, a little bit all over the place, but he's going back and forth between these places regularly by river, yep. which is crazy. That's a lot of time. And that's something I wanted to ask you, too, because for your episode, 
you were in Manaus and you went up to Barcelos on a boat, right? We flew from Manaus to Barcelos. You have little tiny planes that land on little tiny dirt runways and it's all jungle. And that flight is spectacular because you really, as far as you can see, it is all jungle and river and it's incredible. And then from Barcelos, Barcelos currently now is a big hub of sport fishing. And oh, so what man. they have there are these river boats and they look like something out of the movie Jungle Cruise with The Rock uh-huh. and Emily Blunt. I mean, it is that yeah. boat. <laughs> and you can rent those boats and go up river. And so we got one of those boats and that was basically our floating home for a couple of days as we went up river and kind of investigated what we were investigating. Now, we didn't get a chance to actually look for Akakor because I think that is that is a mission in itself, as we'll hear, because Carl himself actually tried to go there. And it's, yes. it's not an easy thing to do. You've you got to put aside about six weeks for that. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing about this. So when Tatuka kept telling the story, he talked about the history of Akakor. He mentioned how at some point over 2,000 German soldiers had come to live there mm-hmm. in the region, like in 1941 during World War II. Yep. And they settled there. And that that was why Tatunka, by the way, had a German accent or spoke in broken German when he was talking to Carl. And also his mother was a German nurse who had been kidnapped and then married the prince. And they had a son named Tatunka. So there you go. So he had a very good explanation for why he has German features and why he has a very strong German accent. Yes. There was a point at which... He actually got arrested for one of the battles that he had been in, and he was supposed to be extradited to Peru to face justice, probably for fighting Peruvian settlers. And just as he was about to be extradited, his soldier friends came to the rescue. And, you know, of course, I'm picturing some sort of Butch and Sundance uh, jailbreak. We're here. Yeah. Or they probably just went in and signed some papers and took him away. More Uh, exciting. I I like your first version better. (laughs) (laughs) So he never got extradited. And uh, so after Brueger talks to him for a while, he gets the story down and he's thinking about how he's going to work this into a book in the future. Probably he's got all these tapes to go through and a lot to get through as a writer. Tatunka says, hey, why don't you come to Akakor? I'm going to take you to Akakor. And Carl says, okay, I'll do that. And so he signs up for this trip and they leave Manaus to head that uh, to the region where it is. It's hundreds of miles away. It's going to be ostensibly a six-week trip. To me, it seems like it should be longer. But they set out on this trip. It's this incredible journey. Carl Brueger is writing how scary it's getting. There's talk of cannibalistic tribes in the area. And it seems like a lot like he's having second thoughts. And he's very honest about this. It's humid. It's mosquitoes. There are diseases. And I'll tell you guys something. It hasn't changed much. It really hasn't. So when (laughs) we went upriver, I had those same feelings and those same thoughts. It's you alone against nature. Yes, the heart of darkness. The heart of darkness, uh, it is. In a lot of sense. Just from the production side, because, of course, Scott and I have a background in that, as we are discussing earlier, in how you do the logistics of that. Like, how do you even approach that? How do you penetrate this jungle to a certain point where now you're going in on a tremendous expedition, which requires a lot of people, a lot of local knowledge, tribal knowledge, if you want. And then on the other hand, one of the people that did go looking for it, John Reed, the end of his story is that he went along for a certain distance. And at that point, the rest of his party or whoever was taking him, they said like, we can go no further. And he ignored that and just bolted off as the story goes on his own. And I'm wondering, though, like, at what point do the local guides say we can go no further? Like, what is that point? And with a production like that, how do you even approach that? Just 
uh, from the Explorers Club manual? How do you get in there? And how would you approach even investigating a story like this? Well, I think in, in John Reed's case, as you said, we'll explore that a little bit more later. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think he had a very good guide. But okay. <laughs> for us, I've done several of these types of shows, and there have been shows where we have actually had to chainsaw our way through the jungle. Mm. And I remember one specifically where I was like, ah, you guys, I got to go pee. I'm just going to go in the bushes. And they were like, oh, no, no, you don't go by yourself. There's jaguars. They'll eat oh. you if you do that. And I was like, okay, <laughs> noted. <laughs> so That's not in the brochure. It's not yeah. in the brochure. You have to be prepared. And I can imagine if you're going into the jungle for six weeks, which is a very difficult environment to survive in, even right. if you have skills and even if you are have local knowledge. If you don't have a local guide, you're probably not going to survive very long at all. I right. mean, there are a right. lot of things. I could sit here and list for the next 20 minutes all the things that could kill you in the jungle and probably the yeah. first hour that you're there. What are some of those? What are some of those? I mean, there is everything, obviously, from, you know, one of the big ones is malaria and yeah. the diseases that you're going to get simply from mosquito bites. Obviously, snakes are a big one. You talked about people asking for boiling pots. If you don't have something to purify your water, you're going to get sick and expire really quickly. Do you have the skills to hunt for food? It seems like there would be a lot around, right? You've got a lot of fruit. You've got a lot of fish to fish. But do you have the tools for that and the knowledge to know which plants you can eat and which you can't? Then you have big predators that can kill you. Even one of the big things in the jungle that people don't understand is because it is such a... Um, heavily watered environment and there's so much rainfall there the roots of the trees are very shallow because they don't have to go deep for water so as soon as the wind starts blowing or there's a storm trees collapse right and left there have been tons of people who have died who they thought were missing or had been kidnapped murdered and then they found them smashed in their tent by a tree so there oh, are wow. so many things that you need to know to survive in that environment it's also not comfortable it's really right. hot you get a scratch and it's going to become infected really quickly. And do you have something to treat that? Do you know the plants that are going to be able to help you, the medicinal plants? Like there is some serious local knowledge that you have to have and everything really has to go perfectly for you, for you to be able to survive. So spending mm -hmm. six weeks on an expedition in that jungle, you need a serious guide and you also need supplies. You need right. medicines. You need everything got to bring that with you. You're not going to find there's, there's not like a 7-Eleven in the jungle there. <laughs> right. And if you have a medical emergency, you probably just have to either you need to be able to deal with it while you're there or you need to be able to stabilize it until you can take a very long trip back to somewhere where it can be fixed. Exactly. And you're not going up there, especially in the 80s, you're not going up there on boats that are going to be moving quickly. Even we didn't. Right. So if something does happen to you out there, it's going to be really hard for people to come find you and extract you from there. Right. So in this story with Carl going to Akakor with Tatunka, it turns out that as they get pretty far into the trip, they hit some heavy, heavy rapids. Their canoe capsizes and they lose a ton of their gear. Camera equipment, medical supplies. Exactly. And it, it becomes clear that they're not going to be able to make it any further. And at this point, Carl's like, we, we have to turn back. And Tatunka is, I guess, preparing to see his people. It's been a while since he's been back to Akakor. He's put on some ceremonial dress and maybe some makeup. And he's like, I'm going ahead. I'm going. We're almost to Akakor. I'm going to go. So he leaves them, again, the vanishing act. He just, I guess, takes off mm -hmm. wherever they were at, however far they were at that point. And Carl returns back to Manaus, this mm -hmm. very long trip. So he never makes it to Akakor. And on top of that, that's the last time he ever sees Tatunka Nara, mm -hmm. ever. 
So he's got the 12 hours of tapes. He's got the backstory, but he does not have a personal experience with Akakor because he never made it there because of the rapids. And what a bummer. His camera equipment was ruined. So even if he made it to Akakor, he can't take a photo. So right, <laughs> you're, then right. you're just another storyteller. <laughs> right. That exactly. actually ensures you finding it. Yeah. Is it that's the Carl Kolschak principle, I, I call it, is that you actually get to see it, but you can't record it. Then no one believes you. And uh, if you had all that working, then, of course, you wouldn't get the evidence, as we were saying. But was there any part of the story, though, that is true starting off before you head out? Like, were there any known caves in the region or tunnels? Was that a known thing? What about the the geography? Because really, the jungle, as you were just explaining in terrific detail here, is a character in this story. It swallows up everything very quickly. It's out to kill you. It's like it doesn't really want you to tell the story. So giving up its secrets, are there any known features that were discussed that are actually possibly attributed to Akakor? Well, I think that's one of the reasons that Carl Brueger was actually on board with this. You know, this guy seemed fairly intellectual. He was a journalist. He was a fact checker. He wasn't just going to jump on board. He even opens his book saying, listen, I'm not the guy that's really just going to believe anything anyone tells me, but I did some fact checking. And yeah, it turns out that there are bits and pieces of his story that are consistent with historical data. And also we know, you know, he's telling us where it is. It is up this river. We know that there are rapids here. There are caves all over that area. And as you said, Mm. the jungle is prolific. It takes back anything. So had there been any ancient structures, well, we know that there are other explorers from Fawcett to, you know, a hundred others who have gone looking and the jungle will take back anything within a matter of years. I've seen this myself in Suriname, old sugar plantations that were there during the Dutch colonial era are now a complete jungle. And the photos of it before were cleared out and they were sugarcane plantations. So it doesn't take long for a jungle to take back what it's there. So had there been pyramids, had there been caves, it's totally possible. And then Tatunka talked about, you know, the, the inner section of these rivers. And he talks about the mountains. It was the Andes. And then he had in the Chronicle of Akakor, he really went through certain things that were pretty plausible and pretty believable, not only historically, but that were consistent with the mythology of other indigenous people of that area. Right. So it made sense. There were small red flags, but there weren't any major red flags. We're kind of medium red flags. In hindsight, maybe they're... They- <laughs> yeah, well, in hindsight, sure. sure, that's 2020. But I mean, Carl, even he, to his credit, he seemed a little bit like, I'm not sure about this, but I'm going to keep looking into this. I'm going to keep documenting it. And what I would like to do next maybe is talk a little bit about what Carl was told or what he gleaned from those uh, 12 hours of tapes with Tatunka before Tatunka vanished into the jungle after their capsized canoe. So in the book, Chronicle of Akakor, there's four sections there that he attributes to Tatunka. Book of the Jaguar, Book of the Eagle, Book of the Ant, and Book of the Water Serpent. Mm -hmm. The Water Serpent is what Tatunka, the name, actually means, or at least that's what Tatunka says it means. So we're not going to go through this. This is, if you can find the book, like we said, the PDF is online. I'm not even sure if we can share that copy, but we did find it. We read it. I think it's public. Yeah. Okay, good. I hope it is, because if you don't have $3,000 lying around (laughs) and you want to read it, it's a pretty amazing read. It's really detailed. It's really intricate. It's rich on time, uh, certain years, and activities that are happening, not only with Tatunka's people, but globally. There's a lot of information that goes into it. Very detailed. This is Christine. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. 
So when he starts out with the book, he talks about hour zero, which is like what Kinga said earlier, when the gods left us. So there were these gods that came down. There was 130 families, apparently, of gods that came down. And Tatunka indicates that prior to that, people walked on all fours. who were very primitive. It was just a whole different thing. And the gods came down and showed them how to take advantage of technology and be smarter and and move forward as a culture. And he said that the gods were very much mortal and they were like man, except they were white. And he also said that they had six fingers and six toes. So Mm -hmm. that was extra fingers, extra toes. That's how you know, okay, I'm in the presence of a god. And his tribe, again, is the Uga Mangulala. He said that Uga, U-G-H-A, means allied, Mangu means chosen or joined, and Lala means tribes. So it's the allied chosen tribes. And he told Carl on these tapes that Akakor had been built, uh, I think, 12, 14,000 years ago, and that Akakor means fortress number two. There was also Akanis, or Akanis, A-K-N-I-S. That would be fortress one, which he indicated would be where what we refer to today as the Panama Canal would be in that area. Then there was Akahim, fortress number three, built in the year 7,315 B.C., because he told Brueger that there was no records of it prior to that, and that Akakor was in a high valley between Peru and Brazil. And one of the greatest architectural features of it was the Great Temple of the Sun, which had a a big area that was open to the sky, which presumably would mean you could see it from the air Mm -hmm. these days, if it was still there. And he said that when you get near the area of Akakor, you have to be very careful because there's a tribe that lives in the trees, the people of the trees that will kill you. Mm-hmm. But that he knew an ancient secret sign that would allow him to pass. And then he said that he didn't know what the sign meant, that its meaning was lost to history, but they still respect it. So it's a very interesting detail. So right off the bat, you have basically you can relate this myth of these ancient gods or aliens coming down to give instruction and technology to the people. You can relate that myth to several other creation myths that are out there. You can relate that to Egyptian myths, to other Mesoamerican myths. And, you know, we're calling the myths. I don't know. Could be true. <laughs> By the way, that gets tricky because that's something that Forrest and I have talked about before because when we talked about Puma Pinku and uh, mm-hmm. Tiwanaku yeah. and, and those uh, Peruvian civilizations, it gets dicey with racism and the idea of, oh, well, these cultures couldn't have done things on their own. Sure. So this elaborate, sophisticated being came down from space and they helped them build things or do things. As somebody who has way more experience in this realm and talking about these types of cultures, what is your take on that, on that perspective? Well, I think some of these cultures themselves left behind information that would indicate that there were some kind of beings that came down and helped them. You know, we have the Nazca lines in Peru. They were building those for planes because planes weren't around at that time. So who were they building them for? We have indicators from all over the world. There's cave art. There's information that there were some kind of beings, you know, not in all cases are, are they, are they white or color is maybe associated with them, but they were very large in stature. Sometimes they had extra appendages. Sometimes they were just very long and lean. Some of them are kind of, I guess you could compare them to modern day aliens of, you know, the, the big eyes. And they're really interesting things that, that fall into that. And I think in Tatunka's case, his is particularly interesting because it's almost like the legends and mythology of Akakor pull from so many of these other cultures, the most closely resembling the Inca. 
because even when he talks about this temple that you mentioned, he talks about there's a giant reflective mirror and it, it captures the sun. We actually, for another show I did called Legend Quest, went looking for the golden sun disk of Peru. I actually went to Cusco and we saw this, the ancient structures there. And then we went to Vilcabamba, which is where the last battle between the Inca and the Spaniards took place. And all of these areas, when I was looking in the book, and there are plenty of maps that Karl Brueger had drawn in there as well, these are consistent with these areas. So I think he predominantly leans on Inca mythology and lore, but he takes from others as well. I think that's a great point. And, and it's something that Scott and I always want to emphasize when we talk about not only just South American cultures, but others that have these way out creation myths, you could say. And we see an irony here in that when you ask the indigenous peoples and you ask the elders, the keepers of this knowledge, the hierophants of the culture, where did this stuff come from? Did your ancestors make this? Because, you know, that's what we want to believe that, you know, some people will claim that others were saying that these people weren't smart enough to have built this. And that that's problematic. But if you ask them, they they said, well, no, it wasn't our ancestors. Our stories are that people came from the sky, the star people yep. or the sky people. Or in the case of Tiwanaku and Pumapunku, it was the Viracocha. Mm -hmm. That yeah, came up out of the lake came, or out of the cave. Out yes. of the cave or from somewhere that is marginal, that is not of this earth and just walking around. And it wasn't our ancestors, if you ask them. So I see the, the problem is, well, who are you going to believe? And then is it problematic when you say like, well, those are just nice stories and, and that's great for your culture. But really, we know the truth as European-based folks. Or are you going to borrow this from somewhere else? So in the case of Tutunka, again, if you're going to make something up, this is pretty smart and that you're taking something that is existing and already there, as you said, from Inca culture, from the Nazca peoples earlier. It is such a common thing. And even if it's more, let's say, terrestrial, where as with Nazca, you maybe have a jaguar god, mm -hmm. something that is maybe half human, half, half god, half animal, then you're borrowing all these things that are in line with existing narratives and that makes it even more real or makes you question, is this real or not? And so it's not just something that some white guy came and made up out of hearing all these fanciful stories. It actually has some anthropological legs to stand on. Sure. And so again, that's that's the great part of any uh, any good legend or myth is that, well, it's not totally out of the ballpark. And I think that's what we have here. So when you're talking about the peoples that Tatunka is claiming he is bred from or sprung from, then it's hard to disprove. Again, another facet of a great legend is that there are some things that are provable, there are some things that are not provable, and it's hard to poke holes in the story. Except for this one, there are there are some pokeable holes, but we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> but also, you know, to your point, you said that Wanting to believe these things and not having all the answers, I think, is really important, too. And at that time, and certainly even now, we can't explain some of these things. We don't actually right. know what the Nazca lines in Peru were originally designed for. You know, I don't, right. I don't think that it is in any way condemning to a culture to say that from archaeological finds, there are no tools that we know that those people used at that time that could have created the doors that were perfectly designed down to the millimeter that would fit into these structures. I believe, in, even you mentioned Tijuana that 
that exists there as well. And in some of these other places too, where we look at that and we're like, we would have a hard time doing that now. And that's not saying, oh, you know, we're so extraordinary and so special and so much smarter, but we have greatly advanced in technology since that time. So I don't think anyone was running around with, you know, bulldozers and and moving these giant pieces of stone around, yet somehow they did. And we can't fully explain that. And even these cultures now, like you pointed out yourself, they're not saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we did that with, you know, a couple tools. They're like, oh, no, no, the star people did that. And in this case, we're not talking about anything left behind. Again, it's another great part of the story, which is unapprovable. We don't have any abandoned structures, blocks that are 4,000 larger than the ones at the pyramids found here, cut to precise measurements as if either molded that way or with some sophisticated machinery. What we're talking about is is strictly purely myth. It is. In this case, with this legend... You possibly have some caves. You have talk of ancient knowledge, which, again, falls in line with all these other creation myths and uh, the story of uh, of people who perhaps lighter skin, taller stature coming down and, uh, again, getting back to that ancient apocalypse story, which that part is fascinating about pre-antediluvian stories of somebody coming and spreading knowledge of agriculture and reseeding it. And you look at another story that we we covered, Gobekli Tepe, where you start to have, uh, I thought it was a, a great point brought up in that series, the temple structures seem to get smaller and less sophisticated as thousands of years passed, as if knowledge was being lost. But at some point, great knowledge was held by the people or given to them in some way. And here you have all the inklings of that, but really no proof to look at. There are no structures. There's really no caves to be found, but it has the promise of that. And that's enough to get people down there, and at least three people looking for this thing. And actually, at the time, spurred a lot of book sales. Oh, that was another. Would you say that this book was a hit? This book was a hit. And this book, especially, I would say, around those groups that loved this kind of stuff. There was even a preface written, but it was it's uh, Eric Von Deniken. Am I saying that right? So uh, I remember reading his book, The Chariots of the Gods. And I think anyone who loves that sort of, whether you call it lore or whether you call it alternative history, however you want to phrase that, people who love that kind of stuff are massive followers of, you know, these types of books. Like they have a niche. And so this book took off like wildfire and it kind of became a hit in all those circles. Right, which is what led to so many people wanting to come down there and see Akakor for themselves, which is interesting when you consider that the author of the book never made it himself nope. to Akakor. Well, some of the other things that uh, Tatunka told him, and I'm just cherry-picking some details from the book from reading it, was at one point there were two million people living in Akakor, and they were governing 362 million people. This was the first hard fact. I was like, okay. A lot. <laughs> I, I was having he, a hard time with that. That's where he bumped on. Yeah, no, that's that, that, where that. I bumped. That was the yeah. first time I bumped. As they, I'm bumping on this as they you're say You're okay with the gods. You were okay with the subterranean <laughs> yeah, tunnels. Like, but you were like, the numbers don't add up. Cool. 306, because the current population of the United States is 30 million less than that. That's the entire country. Of Scott, the US. come on now. It's a liminal space in Middle Earth, perhaps. How do you that take a census? Also like, Mer- <laughs> like Lemuria. How do you well, even know how many? And also, wouldn't you think you would find the remnants of that many people? Don't pull the, the thread on this okay. logic sweater. Okay. It, but All here's right. okay. here's where we can have a, a base in perhaps a, a benchmark with current thinking in 
ancient anthropology and archaeology is if you look at the Cahokia mound cultures. Yes. That was a big one. 30,000, I think, at least okay. in one settlement, which is yeah. a lot yeah. to support that kind of population then, or even uh, Machu Picchu. Those are the ones outside of St. Louis, right? Yeah, somewhere in that, that area. But they're, they're finding new ones. They so built like, the arch. <laughs> well, <laughs> it led Nobody to knows it's how the, the arch got there. It's, it's the it, gateway. Yeah, I've been in that arch. <laughs> I guess cool. the elevator to the apex here is a little sketchy going sideways. Yeah, you know, I've always wondered about that elevator. When it gets to the top, yeah. are you like laying down on no, your side? No, because it, it adjusts. <laughs> I, I, oh, have, I have been I don't know there, if I want to do that. Of all the places I've, driven I've by been, it. I've also been there. I've never been in, but I've driven by it, yeah. Um, but Scott, okay, th listen yes. to the logic of this, though, is, is uh, in that when you're telling this story to a journalist and it ends up in a book, and how far is too far? How much is too fantastic? Because the alluring part is the gaining of this ancient secret knowledge as Kinga said before, the occult part of it, which is just outside of our scope of knowledge. It's hidden. It's the secrets of uh, Enochian magic and Enoch and, and how to uh, agriculture and ancient peoples that we all seem to have lost. That's so appealing. And then if you say like, well, it's at some point the, the population was uh, in the millions. Hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions. People will bump on that. Akakor <laughs> itself, had two million. Rome in its heyday was right. 1.2 million, they right. think. So Akakor was twice as big as Rome. Right. And then all the surrounding tribes. Yes, and still missing and right. still hidden. And by some calculations, during uh, the height of the Roman Empire, the world population may have been uh, 50 million people. That's a figure right. I've heard. Uh, right. My point is that if you're in for a penny, in for a pound. If you're willing to give any credence to a story like this, it's just more fantastical. It's more marvelous. It's more, it shines brighter and lures you even more because now it's a, uh, how did this happen? How is this possible? So you go to look for it. It's just out of reach. This uh, mythical carrot, you'll never reach the uh, the end of the carrot. stick here to get the carrot <laughs> because, Good. yeah, the, the world, like there it. are more, like I said, the, the caves. Now, if you found a cave structure and there were some temples or even stories of it, much like as we talked about earlier here with Kincaid's cave, there were some reports of fantastical things. And then there actually are caves that you can see that have been boarded up or sealed up with concrete because they're a public nuisance. Then that is something to look at, forward to. Here, you don't even have that. It, and so I guess I'm part of this, the reason I love these stories is that it's not even what's found or actually what's been proven to be real or disproven. It's the story itself. And I look at that as another aspect of this. It's just somebody said something and it turned into this and it got real dangerous for a lot of people. So, yeah. And so just words sparked all this. Somebody's story sparked all this. You wonder if Tatunka really intended for it to go as big as it did. You know, what, uh, what yes. was his intention? And we'll definitely dissect that more because I have some answers on that. And I have some insights and, and also some of my own personal thoughts. But you do wonder when he was having that conversation with Carl Brueger, and I'll even tell you what he told me about the book. I think that's really fascinating. And again, uh, as we get into that stuff, I think you'll find that a lot of things get started by people that get big that they don't expect mm -hmm. them to. And you could even say this about some creatives. Sure. People who write novels and people who write screenplay, you know, they're just, everybody's just kind of trying stuff out. And then every now and then something blows up and you didn't expect it. But then when it does blow up, it creates an environment that those people tend to desire. 
because right. with any kind of notoriety comes an essence of fame, doesn't it? And with that, yes. it could become lucrative. And people, even if they didn't intend it to go that big, they like that. Well, continuing on with some of the finer details that Tatunka shared with uh, Carl Brueger, he did say that natural disasters of a global proportion would come along about every 6,000 years in the creation myth. He, he mentioned one that, unless I misread it, I think he suggested that the sun had been blocked out, it was, or the sky was dark, for 6,000 years. Mm-hmm which it's hard to imagine how anything could live through that. And it, but apparently during that period, people got very upset and were very mean to each other. Definitely is bad for the psyche. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it wasn't good. And then in the Book of the Eagle, one of the books, I'm not pulling stuff from every one of the four books, folks. You got to read it if you want to. But uh, he talks about in the year uh, 3166, ships appeared in the sky golden in color. At one point, he talked about a great flood, at which point they built a raft and found some animals, put them on it, and then took them to a mm-hmm. highest point, a mountain. And I was like, I can't quite put my finger on it. <laughs> yeah, this one it. sounds familiar. But again, that's right in line with all the other stories you hear, which were told by more than one person, let's say, yeah. and are part of their culture. And that's another thing, Scott, and I've always talked about the Great Flood, is that it permeates so many cultures around the world. And in the same roughly time period of Earth's development, let's say, or, or development of culture, you do start to wonder about these connected dots or connecting any dots. And and so, yeah, he's right in line, again, including that. And that's something that sounds fantastical. And then we start to actually look into it. It's like, yeah, the Hopi had that kind of myth. Other folks. And who are we to make fun of that, right? I was born in Poland. Right, yeah. I'm Roman Catholic. So quite frankly, I'm making fun of a story about a giant flood when Noah's Ark, I grew up with like little framed photos of that in my house. Yeah, I mean, right. you look at the Catholic Bible and is the Catholic Bible any less weird when you look at it as the Chronicles of Akakor? Realistically, right. it's not. It's just as fantastical. So what you're saying is it's another story that just took off. There you go. I, listen, oh, I've been okay. I've been to the Vatican. I wasn't there looking for the yeah. scrolls that the priest sent, but I've been to the Vatican and I had an opportunity to ask a priest of the Vatican. I said, is, well, actually our producer asked, he said, I'm never going to get a chance to ask this again. I might get kicked out. He said, is the Bible real? <laughs> and the priest smiled and he goes, the Bible is a book written by man. Oh, interesting. Mm. Straight out of the mouth of a Vatican priest. Did you ask where the archives were? Nah. We were actually there looking for them, but no, we couldn't yeah. ask. <laughs> All right. So I found the passage I wanted to read. This is on page 23 of 94 in um, Brueger's book, The Chronicle of Akakor. Twilight still lay on the face of the earth. Sun and moon were veiled. Then ships appeared in the sky, powerful and of golden color. Great was the joy of the chosen servants. Their former masters were returning. They came down to earth with shining faces and the chosen people brought out their gifts, feathers from the largest forest bird, bees, honey, incense, and fruit. The chosen servants laid these gifts at the feet of the gods and danced. Their faces turned to the east toward the rising sun. They danced with tears of joy in their eyes for the return of the former masters. And the animals rejoiced as well. All to the most humble arose in the valleys and gazed up at the ancient fathers. But there were not many of the people left. The gods had killed the majority as a punishment for their behavior. Only a few people were still alive to salute the former masters with all proper respect. They had been smited. Yes, indeed. 
And there was also discussion of uh, one of the earlier leaders in the culture, Lhasa, L-H-A-S-A, who was often absent in his flying disc, a strange vessel that could pass over water and mountains. And Lhasa's flying disc and one of his yes. other modes of transportation is apparently still down in Akakor. He left that behind. Okay, well, there we go. So we need to get there yeah. and find that. <laughs> I, I, I would really like that, actually. It's so ancient aliens, in a sense. Uh, 100%. Where you have, but again, that's, people, I think, hear those, hear about those episodes or watch them or just dismiss them are thinking, well, what a bunch of baloney. But again, these are based on actual texts and beliefs written down or just from oral history of actual cultures. Uh, you talk about the Vamana, the flying, uh, the machines mm-hmm. in those ancient texts and uh, their capabilities. Or that uh, was it the first emperor of China rode around on a some kind of dragon ship that emitted fire. It's like, okay, well, I'm seeing a theme building here and of which this is just one aspect of it, and really with a South American flavor to it, which is in line. So again, there seems to be a narrative building here that is has some insight into what the culture is and what it should be if you're making that up, or if it actually exists. It, that's what I'm saying. There's a plausibility level here, which uh, I appreciate yeah. <laughs> with, with this story. Well, I have to say there was a moment here, and what Carl Brueger said was he said that he tried to, as best he could, take quotes from Tatunka whenever he could from those 12 hours of tapes in terms of putting together the creation myth part of the book. Because there's other parts, too, where Carl was like, well, here's where I did some fact-checking. And then at the end, he fact-checks again. He talks about chronology and what kind of events in real history might intersect with what Tatunka was saying. But there was a philosophical paragraph in here that I like, I was just trying to get through the book so we could talk about it. And then after I read this paragraph, I kind of got a thousand yard stare. So I'm going to, I'm going to read this to you guys real quick. Too. <laughs> Wait, when, this is about, this is about life, uh, just, and, and life and death and the soul mm-hmm. and the spirit. And I, and I thought this was particularly poetic if, uh, Tatunka wrote it or Carl did, I'm not sure. When the candle is extinguished, feelings also become extinct. Therefore they as well cannot mean our real life. For our body and our senses are subject to time. Their character consists of change, and death is the complete change. Our heritage teaches us that death destroys something we can, in fact, do without. The real I, meaning I, the person me, the real I, the kernel of humans, life is outside of time. It is immortal. After the death of the body, it returns from whence it came. Just as the flame uses the candle, the I uses man to make his life manifest. After death, it returns into nothingness, to the beginning of time, the first beginning of the world. Man is part of a great, incomprehensible cosmic happening that runs smoothly and is ruled by an internal law. Our former masters knew this law. And I was like, oh, look, we're, we're the flame using the can. <laughs> I, I, I like, would like to make a comment here. Whoa, it, dude. <laughs> that's, well, the whoa, dude part is, yeah. it is uh, it, it's really part of an era here. So if you look at the story, when Tatunka uh, perhaps was... Uh, in his salad days and, and youthful glory, is right in line with a 70s worldwide sweep of a rediscovery or an exploration and a celebration of the metaphysical. And that seemed to have swept up, if you're talking about people that, you know, what was still going on, one of the people that went looking for it, again, sorry to jump ahead, but I was going to throw out a name here, Swedish-born adventurer, you could say, Christine Hauser, 
who uh, was a German who lived in Sweden, went down there in 1987 around that part, a yoga teacher, somebody who was drawn to the mystical and the metaphysical, really, again, it's people like that who buy into, can really absorb this story. And it sounds like what Scott just read here was a lot of the, the same books that uh, my folks are reading. And, and when we talk about that reawakening of metaphysical topics or whatever, this is right in line with this whole time period. And I think that's also why the story worked so well and resonated with so many people of this generation. It had those elements of it and were perhaps also part of Tatunka's education experience from a Western civilization. Yeah. And that's what he drew on to further and uh, fluff up this nest of here of a story. And that's also why the book was so popular, as with so many other books. We were talking about, you know, Edgar Casey. Sensibilities, yeah. Exactly. All the stuff coming up. And uh, it was really part of the zeitgeist. Absolutely. And it's it's worth noting that Tatunka was about 30 years old when this book was being written in 1972. Mm-hmm. He was early 30s. Right. He was like 33 or something like that. Right. Yeah. 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 That is interesting because I mean, it's a very, that paragraph I just read is very much like something you, you envision, you know, David Koresh saying, or some other cult leader Mm -hmm. trying to pull you into something. But I also, I was just like, yeah, well, I can, I sort of, I can get with this philosophy. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's appealing. uh, I I get like, listen, I get why people were sucked into this because you read this and you're like, this is really cool. Like, I want to be a part of this. Like, and then you have that idea of like, well, what if I was the person to discover it? Like, it's never been seen. Wait a minute. What if it could be me? Yeah. Yeah. Very attractive. Hi, I'm Paul from Ireland. When I'm not looking for giant owls or mysteriously disappearing aircraft, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. The other thing that I thought when I read the book that was uh, that was really amazing was that uh, Tatunka's knowledge, not just of creation myths and uh, in the broader sense and across the world. I mean, he had seems to have a really good education when it comes to how different cultures developed and the myths that they have. Specifically, he talks about ones that coincide with Peru. He actually brings up Viracocha. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is, and I, you know, I I am not sophisticated enough or well educated enough to say that this is definitively what was happening, but. I got an impression that he was suggesting that Viracocha was actually an outcast from his culture. That's exactly right. And then went over and started the Incans. Yeah, and founded Cusco. Yeah, the the Incans, I think, would would take, would not like that. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, no, that we didn't, he he got kicked out over here. Then he went over there and started your culture. I was like, wow, that's that takes a lot of gall to put something like that in your story. It's like, oh, yeah, that guy. Oh, by the way, Jesus. Yeah, he was over here, too. We kicked him out. We kicked him out. And he started that whole thing you're doing now. Yeah, it's just, it was like, wow. I thought that was pretty bold. Well, it's a little like Tatunka himself. Very grandiose, one might say. Yeah. A grandiose outcast, keeper of secret knowledge. And that is so appealing and also part of I think when you're talking about cults, why those start? Because it's a promise that we're going to let you in on this. Right. And if you follow our rules and uh, you are respectful, as Scott just read here, it's like the people didn't know how to honor the ancestors and the wise ones. But we know, and we will tell you how. And if you become adherents, you will gain this knowledge and access the keys to this utopia. 
that has been hidden from you, but is also real where there is no worry or sickness. But only if you can make it past the rapids. (laughs) Well, there there are challenges. Yeah, there's guys in the trees. Yeah, there's always. And if you don't know the secret sign, which is either the hot tuna sign or yeah, something like that, (laughs) you're going to get shot. It's it's the hero's quest. There is danger, there is peril, but the worthy will make it and attain the riches. It's the dragon. It's the ogre in the cave. It's the minotaur. It is such classic killer rabbit. Yeah, you're going to have to go down. Absolutely. And have you noticed in in all these stories, they always are told from the perspective of the chosen people. It's never, yes. oh, we were the rejects. Yeah. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. We I got the winners write the history. No, the yeah. winners write the history. Exactly. But everyone's history, even though we know that the Incas actually existed, they're also the chosen people. Everyone right. from their version of events is the chosen people. And what was interesting about Akakor and Tatunka's events is even down to little details, I would catch things in the stories I was reading, that he mentioned that the Unga Mungulala when they would fight, when their, when their warriors would go into battle, they would only fight during the day. They wouldn't fight at night because mm. any warrior who would die after the sun had set wouldn't then ascend to their version of heaven. That's straight out of Inca mythology and history. Yeah. So right, it's yeah. really interesting how down to these tiny little tidbits he would pull from these other cultures. And could that be also because neighboring regions would have very similar traditions and, and belief right. systems? Absolutely. But it is very it is an interesting little bit. But the reality is, you know, it, whether Akakor is real or not, is that a lot of creation myths, they have concentric circles like that. Then the Venn diagram, there's parts that intersect. Yep. That is the catch-22 of like, is this story, is Tatunka's story real or not? And it's like, well, the components of it that seem to come from other places, well, it's the same thing is happening for us with the Bible and the Incans. And there's all kinds of common ground. I mean, everybody's got the flood. We've all got the flood. So it's like, how do you use that to determine whether or not his story of Akakor is real or not? Right. And have we even touched on the fact that Lasso, when he came down, he basically presided over these tribes in what is now like the Amazonian basin, right? But his right. brother took off and he went to another area. And as it's described in the book, that's Mesopotamia. And he basically founded ancient Egypt. And then he right. talked about how they came over and there was actually trade between the two of them. And there was a port there and they were trading. And interestingly right. enough, between Inca history and Inca mythology and ancient Egyptian mythology, there are a lot of intersections and crossovers. Yeah. So yes. Tatunka was really well versed in ancient history and mythology, if nothing else. Mm, right. In his young 30s. In his by young the 30s. Way. Yeah. It's a high level of knowledge or at least the ability to expert talk about it. Yeah. You might say if someone is obsessed with something, if you are incredibly passionate, we'll say passionate instead of obsessed. If someone's incredibly passionate about something, he could have easily amassed that kind of knowledge, whether he had a Western upbringing or whether he was born in Akakor. That's the other thing about (laughs) it. And we're sort of saying, I guess we're kind of saying the same, or I'm saying the same things over and over. That book, The Creation Story, it reads like Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. Uh, There's battles and George R. R. Martin could take it and make it into something on HBO or whatever because there's just so it would make an actually really good movie, it the would. whole Akakor saga. We yeah, should see and, if anyone has the rights to this book. I know, right? <laughs> Seriously. Uh, I wonder what's going on with that. Well, I just want to get down to sort of the the later stage stuff. I mean, we we've gone through uh twelve thousand years of history here uh, in a very short <laughs> time. Notes. But I do want to talk about the nineteen thirty-two to nineteen forty-five World War II. This is when the Germans come to Akakor because this is gonna be part of how this story moves forward. There's a significant reason that the German presence 
is important. And so one of the things that Tatunka said was that these Germans, a group of Germans, are traveling from Marseille to Brazil. They, I think they came in waves because it was an agreement. That's the other thing that's implied. And Kinga, you'll have to tell me if I read this wrong, but it was like this was, they agreed that 2,000 people could come over because I think they came in waves and then they showed up, which would imply that at some point the German government had paperwork on this. Because his mom went back, remember? So Tatunka's mom was a German nurse who had been captured right. along with other nurses. The other, Some were killed and some drowned. She was the only one that made it. The prince at the time, Tatunka's dad, fell in love with her. They made Tatunka. And then she decided to actually go back to her home country, Germany, and basically convince the Germans to help Akakor and the Unga Mungulala. So she went back to Germany and she basically brokered this agreement and she brought these Germans over. Okay, that answers my next question. I must have missed that because that answers my next question. It was like, no one else can find this, but the Germans all just showed up at Akakor. She made, she made a map. <laughs> but she brought them. Yeah. She yeah. brought them, right. So that answered that. I can take that question off my list. So they come over, they brought gifts, they brought weapons, they trained people how to fight. They agreed to help the Ugamangalala defend themselves against white settlers coming in from Peru, I guess encroaching. There was a lot of, and there's a lot of mention of white barbarians in the book. And Tatunka basically saying, you know, the Amazon is just being crushed. And this is all seems very real. It's being crushed by all these settlers coming in. And one of the things that I had uh, looked up, Kinga, I mean, you went to Manaus. I don't know what it was like, but I just stumbled across. uh, The rubber trade, the oil trade. Yeah, the rubber, that whole like horrible, horrible slavery, Mm -hmm. like really bad stuff. The plantation with, I can't remember the guy's name, Arena, I think, Arenas. 50,000 slaves he starts out with and has like uh, 5,000 a few weeks later, just killing all of, it's horrible. And there's pictures. I was just like, I did not know this was happening. This is a part of history oh, that yeah. I never got taught. Was, yeah, I, so. I did another show called Enslaved and it was a documentary series about the transatlantic slave trade. And we touched on Brazil. And then we also, as I mentioned before, went to Suriname and okay. when it was Dutch owned and the plantations there. And they were mm-hmm. absolutely horrific. Unbelievable. Yeah. Just horrible, horrible stuff. So then that part of Tatunka's narrative, that tracks too with like what is happening to the people of Akakor, the fighting the white settlers, the Germans are helping with that. But he also said there was some great battle and they lost it. They were horribly defeated. The Germans, uh, they didn't. And then they wound up assimilating into the culture and that sort of explains, you know, a little bit, of course, his mom was was German. So that, ex- but that explains sort of the German presence and may explain some other things about Tatunka that will come along later in part two. But well, there's a there's a whole other German, let's say, post-World War II connection yes. yeah, to that's South really America. Yes. Tatunka, yes. in the, uh, on camera, he says he was born in 1938. Yeah. When I interviewed him, he said he was born in 1941. Right. Records would indicate otherwise. Other right. <laughs> exactly. Right, right, I, but right. yeah, you have a, and being at that age, you know, I just wondered, it's like, uh, what is the European connection here with Germany? And, uh, you know, jumping ahead uh, or getting ahead of myself, just wondering, it's like, is he, is somebody escaping something that was unpleasant somewhere else? Let's say <laughs> like East Germany during the time when he would have been a, a a thriving young man. What is the connection here to other parts of European history other than just obviously a German connection, which he, again, it's pretty wise in that things have been thought out that would give excuse to this story and are hard to track, except for some very major things, which if you're willing, you just kind of ignore those things. Yeah. But everything else is, is, as far as his story and what he what he's claiming here, 
could tie in and there are cultural movements. It's like, and that's just part of natural uh, immigration and emigration. There's a large Japanese population in Peru. You know, there's a large uh, Indian population in uh, Fiji. It's just people in groups move around and they they have a presence there. So politically, in, in such a politically corrupt way, the, the <laughs> SS soldiers, that a lot of them, which ended up in Argentina during that time. Yeah, in the, the, yeah. yeah the boys in Conducting Brazil. Yeah, yeah, the boys in Brazil. And even yeah. in, in what you're also referencing with Tatunka is, is the submarine of Germans yes. that showed up and they were former German soldiers. And actually, Karl Brueger, who it's worth noting is also German, puts an asterisk in there and says, we're assuming that Tatunka did not know the history of the Nazi movement. That's right. And this is why he spoke so favorably of them and basically brought them in. Again, this story has... Because has, he didn't it know. touches everything. Well, in your, as my, my friend uh, uh, John had recently brought up to, to Scott and I, Operation High Jump, and you're talking about SS uh, U-boats or U-boats going to Antarctica to hide artifacts and South America. And just U-boats are everywhere. Yes. Dropping everything off you could possibly imagine. They found one by the way, off yeah. the coast of Argentina, I think, not too long ago, I believe, mm. because they were at the, oh, no, there's, we actually found a boat, but I, I, right, I will right. look that up. But, well, so moving forward, I want to circle back for a second to this plane crash in 1968. This is the one we mentioned before. Mm-hmm. This is the one that uh, Tatunka's father, if I understood correctly, had asked for Tatunka to go and pick up the survivors from the Allied Tribe of Black Hearts, he called it, and execute them. But instead, this is the one version of the story. Kinga, we had talked about a couple of different versions of it. And that was the prince, Sinkaya, I'm not sure how you say his name, S-I-N-K-I-A-I-A, who was Tatunka's father, ordered him to do that. He refused, took them to Manaus. We talked about that, set them free. But not too long after that, that prince, Sinkaya, dies. Mm -hmm. And this is the point at which Tatunka ascends to become the head honcho at Akakor. And there's a ceremony that happens here. And this is, this is I, when I, things get weird. Yeah, I wanted to share this ceremony because this jumped out at me too. The reason Tatunka took the soldiers and brought them to Manaus against his father's wishes was because he decided that war wasn't serving anybody. He wanted right. to create peace and he, he thought that this was a peaceful gesture. So that's why he, yes. he made that decision. And by the way, he also said that because of that, he would have been sentenced to death by his people for having disobeyed his father, but instead his father got sick and died. So I think it was kind of the slate was kind of wiped clean. It sounds yeah, good. that's right. Because he also said, "Who would do it? Who would who would execute me?" And he he seems to be implying everybody wanted peace. Yeah. Everyone wanted a type of peace, which is interesting coming from someone who later we might identify as potentially violent person. I thought about that as well when he talked yeah. about the white barbarians and he talked about how evil they were and were always cheating yeah. each other. I, I really, there were some kind of slight flashes forward to that. <laughs> yeah, because when he, one of the interesting sections of the book is after he gets to Manaus with the 12 soldiers that he's rescued, is he's like unfrozen caveman lawyer. He's just exactly. like, look at all these buses. People are horrible. I, yeah, I don't understand. And <laughs> he was like overwhelmed. Stuff. Yeah, he was overwhelmed with it all. And I guess that makes sense if he is who he says he is. Sure. There's some cognitive dissonance going on. Yeah. I, I, I think, a, and also a little cultural and just behavioral compartmentalizing. There's a lot of psychiatry <laughs> in that. And just to foreshadow a little bit, do I think that Tatunka believes some of these stories himself? I do. I think yeah. he believes them. Yeah. <laughs> I want to share this section about him becoming the big cheese after oh, his yeah. dad Oh, that's dies. a great way of putting it, yep. 
During Sinkaya's burial, ominous signs appeared in the sky. The Uga Mangalala warriors suffered heavy defeats. The allied tribe of the Serpent Eaters renounced Akakor and went over to the side of the white barbarians. The rainy season came with such violence that even the eldest of the people had never experienced anything like it. Despair and fear spread through the chosen tribes. Under these signs, the High Council assembled to elect the new prince and legitimate ruler of the Uga Mangalala. According to the bequest of the gods, I was summoned to the throne chamber of the underground dwellings, and the council questioned me for three days and three nights on the history of the chosen tribes. Then the high priest escorted me into the secret regions of Lower Akakor. Now my destiny was in the hands of the gods. I encountered the secret temple complex in the early morning shortly after sunrise. Wrapped in Lhasa's golden garment, I descended a broad staircase. It led into a room and even now I cannot say whether it was large or small. The ceilings and walls were of a bluish infinite color. They had neither beginning nor end. On a hewn stone slab were bread and a bowl of water, the signs of life and death. Following the high priest's instructions, I knelt down and ate of the bread and drank of the water. A deep silence lay over the room. Suddenly, a voice that seemed to come from everywhere commanded me to rise and to go into the next room which resembled the great temple of the sun. Its walls were covered with many diverse strange instruments. They shimmered and glittered in all colors. Three large slabs sunk into the floor glowed like iron. For a long time, I stared wonderingly at the strange instruments. Then I again heard the mysterious voice. It led me still further and deeper into a third room. My eyes were so dazzled by the bright light that I took a long time to recognize a sight that I will never forget. In the middle of the room, whose walls radiated the mysterious light, stood four blocks of transparent stone. When filled with awe, I was able to approach them. I discovered in them four mysterious creatures, four living dead, four sleeping humans, three men and one woman. They lay in a liquid that covered them to their breasts. They were like humans in every respect, only they had six fingers and six toes. I cannot remember how long I stayed with the sleeping gods. I only know that the same voice called me back to the first room. It gave me advice full of wisdom and revealed to me the future of the chosen tribes. But the voice forbade me to talk about it at any time. After my return from the secret temple complex 13 days later, the high priest greeted me as the new legitimate ruler of the Uga Mangulala. Oh, that's quite a process. Sure is. And also a lot of the imagery is... Uh... I don't know, fits within that. Uh, <laughs> it it's it's like a movie, yeah, that one may have seen, but also fits with where movies and screenwriters get the that type of imagery from actual texts and and claims, but with a little spin. And where have we heard that before, Scott? With the uh, the people in suspended animation, well, in several areas, uh, not only with uh, a CIA sponsored. Remote viewing session. Oh yes, about a million years ago on Mars, all the way to uh, Lake Baikal, and it, the associated story was that the the Chinese military, the communist Chinese government military, had found a cave with people, large people in suspended animation. These were giants. They unthaw one, decide this is not good, and kill the rest. But again, this is a same thing going back to Kincaid's cave. Beings of another unknown and mysterious origin, proto-humans. Uh, we just did uh, 
Zaritina. Oh, Zaritina, yes. And at the, the, at the if you go through the, uh, the prescribed journey, which is very hard to get into the earth, you will find a being that is the proto-human, sealed in suspended animation, sealed up and not to be opened. Otherwise, bad things happen. Kinga, for your next show, I want you to just go to all the places we've covered. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm game. <laughs> Trying to find out what's going on, what's really going yeah. on there. We'll and, call uh, you on Zoom. Perfect. It'll it'll be like us on Here, the guys. phone, just be like, yeah, yeah. How, yeah. is it is it safe? Again, well, Can we come? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, to avoid all the discovery, just tell us what you find. Yeah, perfect. yeah. And, uh, I'll take yeah, some pictures. We'll interview you after. Uh, yeah, this we'll is, take uh, it. Classic. The only thing uh, again, when you start thinking about it, I thought about this uh, with the six fingers. Is that that is part of? I start to wonder again about uh, looking at this as a story, and I think a lot of people that may have a point of contention about all of this, if, as we say, if you believe any of this at all, wondering if this is true. It's like, look, I just like the story and I analyze it from that, these elements of myth and uh, folklore and what part of it, it makes sense to me logically. And of course, where do we see the six fingers that I immediately thought of when you mentioned that? In the book is that the uh, Princess Bride. Well, uh, that <laughs> oh well, there is <laughs> that. Yeah, you want to happen to have six fingers on, your and right you have hand, the you? <laughs> the fun glove, even the the Gattaca, where you can bioengineer a pianist to have yes. six fingers, and they can play amazing things, yes. uh, and that benefits. But generally, it didn't seem of much benefit Somebody's to me. Write that but music, where you, yeah, where you heard that again was Roswell and the yeah. recovered saucer crash and the plate that was supposedly the control panel to fly one of the crash saucers had a indentation in it for two hands with six fingers. And at the tip of each finger was like a little pressure sensitive uh, nub in there. And supposedly that transmitted the thoughts of the pilot with the six fingers to fly the craft. And I just thought like, what's an extra digit really going to give you evolutionarily? By the way, you heard it first. The pilot of the Roswell craft was one of Hemingway's cats, his polydactyl That's cat. right, from, from <laughs> Key West. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it just, yeah, right. So so when I think of that, that makes it sound, okay, now you've, you've gone too far. Like that, that's a, a human invention. And then do you, yeah. do you wonder if that's because our psychology wants these aliens, and I'm doing air quotes, yeah. to be so different and advanced, but we still yes. kind of want them to be like us. So we don't, yeah. we don't want him to be yeah. too weird and too creepy. We don't want him to, you or, know, be, be freakish. We want him to be right. like us, but somehow better. So we add a finger and there it is. Now they're better. We, or yeah, is yeah. it because yeah. the rules of physics and biology are the same universally and pretty much every time you throw the dice, you get something kind of humanoid? Maybe. Maybe. Earlier you were talking about cave paintings and figures. And there's such a one at Nazca where... It's carved in a stone. It's obviously, I think where Scott and I came across that, where it's obviously a not a human and not a representational human. It's it is a oh you know what no that was um, Australia, and also if you're talking about cave paintings, the Wajinda, where you have oh. the uh, the white beings with extra large heads. I think the dividing factor is that now it's obviously something that is maybe bipedal and has arms and legs, but is not clearly human. That is just another being. It's not something anthropomorphic where uh, it's like, well, it's a representation. You know, if you're looking for logical explanation, it's like, well, it's just a representation of a human with uh, some artistic license where it's like, no, the big head just means they were smart. The mushroom head, don't pay attention to that. Or the giant round eyes. No, these people are human. They're just, uh, or it's fantastical. And I wonder, it's like, well, these people were of their era and fairly decent artists. 
didn't look like that at all? Or is it all representational? These bring in the questions. And if you uh, if you don't want to buy into that, you just say like, well, no, no, it's just fantastic art and creative license. And then I wonder, it's like, did any of these things actually look like that? And they just painted what they saw? And so you have the same thing with the Nazca lines. You have a, a creature who's like, well, that's just an owl man. That's Although that's not really part of their, their religious culture because we don't have any record of that. We're just going to call it an owl man because then we can sleep at night. And we don't have these giant beings uh, coming down to, uh, to scrape uh, designs in the earth or telling people to do that. And so it's an easier way to get around that. But I, I guess to this point is that as with Tatunka's story, you have a... Um, something that is more human and maybe more, you're able to buy into that. And there, as Kinga said, it's just slightly different to make them just a little bit better than the average human. Human adjacent. Right. Human yeah. adjacent. But not so wild. It's like, no, no, they had giant white mushroom heads with these giant translucent eyes and, and no mouth. And they yeah. talk to us telepathically. That's a little much. Yeah, because it's also so, saying we look like the gods. There, right, there's right. something exactly. egotistical in that. We look yeah, just true. like the gods. Yeah. They just have one more finger. Right. And part yeah, of, uh, uh, yeah, part of a lot of uh, 70s metaphysics and the and the new age is that you have the divine within mm-hmm. you, and which is also a very appealing aspect yeah. of that, is that you can be this too. You just, you've forgotten the ways, but if you listen to me, I'll tell them to you. We have it all in there. I just got to be the one to unlock it. Well, we are coming to a close on this episode. I did want to read one last section from the book here, because this talks about one of the reasons maybe nobody has found Akakor. Shortly after Tatunka became the big man on campus in Akakor, here's a, a section of what he did. This is on page 72 of uh, Brugger's book, Chronicle of Akakor. To prevent the discovery of Akakor by airplanes, I gave orders to camouflage all temples, palaces, and houses with bamboo and reed matting. I had the watchtowers outside Akakor destroyed and replaced with pitfalls. After a few moons, the capital had been overgrown by the forest to such an extent that even the allied tribes had difficulty in locating it. The access to Akakor was now completely closed to white hunters and prospectors. They found nothing but abandoned ruins on their forays. They suspected the work of evil spirits and retreated behind the frontier at the Great Cataract. Now, you know what gets me about that, Scott, is that this, according to the Chronicles of Akakor, and Tatunka's story would have been done in the late 70s. That, right? Yeah. That is when he decided yeah. to basically shut off Akakor from the world. Yet, right. in 1980, he starts leading people to Akakor as a guide. Right. Right. Huh. Uh, yeah. Well, he denied all that on camera. Well, he, at some point. he yes, he did. <laughs> Although, you know, we are certain of the fact yes. that he did indeed make a lot of money by guiding people yeah. to Akakor. I mean, he did try to take Carl Brueger there. Right. He did yeah. try to take Wolfgang there. He did try to take certain other people there as well. Yeah. And not right. everybody made it back. So that's one possible reason that maybe nobody can find Akakor. As soon as Tatunka became the prince in charge of it, he's like, we got to hide this. We're going to take this down. And also, according to him, people are still there because a huge portion of it is underground, which is something that's different from a lot of these lost cities like El Dorado. You don't really hear that so much. This is apparently a giant underground complex where people can still be living. And there's a suggestion, though, and I can't remember exactly what time period this was with Tatunka, but I think he suggested that there were 5,000 people above ground farming and doing agriculture mm-hmm. and everybody else was below. 
Yeah, 80% of it's supposedly in caves and underground. Right. It, so it, it's very interesting, this idea that maybe, and he, he talks about artificial light in some cases. In other places, there's uh, tubes of light that come down apparently from the surface. Very interesting. Oxygen coming through the walls. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people are reading this book for all the reasons that we've been talking about. It's it's a really fascinating and compelling read, and you guys should read it. We'll provide a link to the PDF because Kinga said it was okay. There's some folks, though, that are adventurers, and uh, they are very much interested in finding Akakor. And there's three people in particular that decided that they were going to go down there. These three people are people we're going to be talking about in part two. Uh, one of them was John Reed. He was a young man who uh, came from America in 1980 to go and find Akakor. Then there was Herbert Vonner, a Swiss citizen that went in uh, 1983 or 84 to find Akakor. And Christine Hauser, who went uh, from Sweden, who went in 1987. And all three of them hired Tatunka to take them to Akakor. So, Kinga, what happened to uh, those three folks when they went to find Akakor with Tatunka? Well, that actually brings us to my interview with Tatunka. And I went to Barcelos. I sat with Tatunka and I interviewed him for murder. That's going to wrap up part one of our series on the lost city of Akakor. A very special thanks to our wonderful guest, Kinga Phillips. Look for Kinga's show, Finding Adventure, on the very local streaming app, or explore this on beyond.tv. That's B-E-O-N-D TV. We'll be back in two weeks with part two and more on the mysterious Tatunka Nara. In the meanwhile, we promise our patrons a new junk drawer is on the way now that Forrest is back in the fold. And if you haven't already, find and subscribe to the other two shows from the Astonishing Legends Network, Scared All the Time and The Midnight Library, wherever you get your podcasts. Richard Haddam's Paranormal Bookshelf is launching in about two months as well, so keep an ear out for that too. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Hi, I'm Dave Palace. C-H-R-I. I'm Paul Dalton. S-T. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Thank you, Scott and Forrest. I-N-E. No implied promise. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>